but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. We've sung it. You are alive. You are risen. And forever you will reign. Forever you will be glorified. Uh, Forever you are alive. And that's why we gather to express our thankfulness and our worship and our joy. And we just ask now that your spirit would fall on us in a fresh new way, Lord, as we begin a new series. Lord, I'm just a man, just a needy man. And so I just ask that your Holy Spirit would fill me, that you have just free course to run, that you would guide my mouth, that you would guide my lips, that you would guide this this sermon so that your people are encouraged and challenged and uh, are edified and the church is built up and that Christ is exalted. That is our goal. It is not for man uh, to be lifted high, but for you. And so through our lives and through our singing and through our worship and through our loving each other and through our serving one another, may Christ be exalted and honored. Uh, and that only comes, Lord, if, if you are doing it by your spirit. So we just invite you and, and thank you that you uh, will do a great work in our hearts. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. We're beginning a new series, many of you know already, on the book of Acts. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, and you're thinking, what's the book of Acts? It's kind of a silly name. If you're ever wondering, what was the early church like? What, I mean, what was that first church plant like? And what were the first Christians? What was the story there? And what happened? And how did that work? That is the book of Acts. It's the story of, our, of the church, of, of the beginning of the church. Um, and, and we're going to spend the next couple months looking at this book. But here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to study and read this book like we're in a history class. Well, that's not neat. Look what God did. Oh, that was cool. Let me chart the book. Let me write my outline. Isn't that neat, my outline? We, we don't want to look at like a, hist- like a history book. We want to look at it and we want to read it like it's a map. And I know some of you young folks are like, what's a map? I don't know what that is. I know you, you know, you get, sorry, how do I get here? That's your map, okay. But back in the day, we had these things called maps and you had to follow roads, really, believe it or not. But a map is for someone who is going somewhere. A map is for someone who has direction, but there's a purpose. A map is for someone who, who might be going on an adventure, right? Who is doing something. And so we are going to look at the book as a people with direction. They're looking to go somewhere. It, it's been kind of tongue in cheek said, but kind of, and I think well said, that, that the book of Acts is the only book that's not done. Right now, we're not saying that there's new Bible being written, but the idea is the story of the church is still being written. And, and it's 2014, and guess what? It's our chapter. It's our chapter now. 
it, it's, we're part of God's grand story that he's, been, that he's been doing since the beginning of the ages. And, and if you go back to understand where you fit, you gotta go back and you see the big picture where, where God creates our first, our first dad and mom and Adam and Eve and they're in the garden and they're in perfect relationship, perfectly being known by God, perfectly knowing God and they rebel and then there's a fall. But God does something spectacular. He kills an animal and he covers their shame and then he makes this, this small little promise it's this little glimmer of hope that one day there would be a redeemer, a rescuer, someone who would crush the head of the serpent. And it's just a small promise. But at that moment, it's like this, this little snowball wave of grace begins. And it's, you see through the scripture, it just starts snowballing and snowballing. This, this story of grace, this story of redemption, how God is going to rescue people. And so you see that, that little promise in Genesis 3, and you might even just kind of blow past it and not notice it. But then a few chapters later, you see there's a guy, and, and God says, in you, all the nations are going to be blessed. All the nations of the world. And then a, and then a few chapters later, there's a, there's a nation that is born called Israel, and then and later you have laws and, and sacrifices and all these things that are pointing to this wave of grace that is coming and this nation that's supposed to be God's representatives and everyone's supposed to see them and say, wow, isn't their God great? But they keep rejecting him and they keep blowing him off and they keep worshiping false gods and he keeps sending prophet after prophet that say, there's one coming. There's one coming who will rescue. He will redeem. He is a Messiah. And there's all these prophecies about what he's going to look like and what he's going to do and where he's going to come from. So they'll know him when he comes and the wave of grace keeps going. And finally he shows up and he's humble in a manger. No fanfare. And he lives this perfect life proving who he is and, and fulfilling all the prophecies. And he presents himself to the nation of Israel. Here I am. Here I am, your Messiah. And they kill him. And it's as if this wave of grace, you're like, wow, did it stop? What happened? But then he raises from the grave, declaring that he is the son of God. And this wave continues. And this was the plan all along, that the Messiah would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for men so that they could get back to that garden condition, being known by God and knowing him perfectly. And then he does something that this, makes this wave of grace unstoppable. He creates a new thing called the church, where a group of people will be supernaturally empowered, in just literally indwelt by the living Christ. And he says, this church, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. This is part of my story. This is part of the wave of grace that I've been, that, that little promise in Genesis 3, and now it's this huge snowball, and it's been rolling for 2,000 years. And now here we are, and it's our chapter. It's our time. It's our mission. It's our adventure that God is saying, I want you to be part of this, this thing I started, that, that I predicted, that I, that I ordained before the ages began. And so we're gonna, if we're going to be on a mission, and if we're going to be on an adventure, then we're going to need a map. And that's the book of Acts. And so for the next couple months, we're going to be looking at our map and saying, what is it that God wants us to do? What, what are we supposed to do? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Why, why are we exist? And we're going to look at it in this book. And, and for any map, what you need, you need a key, or what they call, used to call a legend. I know this is like old school history stuff, right? But what the key did, what the legend does, it, it, it explains the map. It explains the symbols. It gives you where the true north is. It shows you how, how long this distance is on the map. It kind of unpacks the entire map. Without the legend, without the key, the map makes no sense. And these first, first few verses we're going to look at today, this is the legend for our map. 
If we don't get what we get, this first 11 verses say today, the whole map doesn't mean anything. It's useless. There's no adventure. There's no story. There's no wave of grace. The things that we'll talk about today briefly in these just first 11 verses are essential to everywhere we're going in these next couple months. So let's, let's jump in, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to start. I usually get background, but the background's in the first two verses, and so I, I, I don't really have to give the background. It kind of unpacks it for us. In verse 1 of the book of Acts, he says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day where he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We find out right up front that this is, this is part two. The first book, what's the first book? This is like Rocky II. This is the Empire Strikes Back. There's something that happened first, right? What was it that happened first? What's, what's, the, what's the prequel? The prequel is the book of Luke. Acts is the second part of the gospel of Luke. In fact, in the beginning of Luke, this is what Luke says. And as much as many has undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We have a guy, his name is Luke. We find out he's a physician from the Apostle Paul. He didn't see Christ. He wasn't an eyewitness, but he's like an investigative reporter. And he says, I'm going to put together a compilation of Jesus' life for you, most excellent Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? We have no clue. His name means lover of God or loved by God. That's all we know about him. But he writes this gospel to basically say what Jesus did in his life. It covers about 5 BC to 30 AD. And then when you go to the book of Acts again, he says, in my first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. But there's more. I got to tell you about part two. Uh, Michael Corleone's still there. Godfather too. We got to talk about what he does next. There's, there's more to this story. So I'm going to write about it. Trick question. Who wrote the majority of the New Testament? Ah, oh, Paul did not write the majority of the New Testament. He wrote the most books. Luke wrote the most of the New Testament between the book of Luke and Acts. See? If you learn nothing else today, you got that. All right. So here. So first, part one covers Jesus' birth to Jesus' ascension. Part two covers what happened next for the next 30 years to about 62 AD, all right? And so he gives a little bit of a recap in verse 3. Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here's, this, this is essential right up front. He, he gives us one of the, the key parts of this, of this map. Jesus presents himself alive for 40 days, Jesus didn't just at Easter say, all right, y'all, get some seersuckers, a bow tie, get some ham and some sweet tea. I'm alive, and this is good. He spends 40 days showing up on the Emmaus Road, boom, up in the upper room, beer. Thomas, feel my hands over here, boom. Going making breakfast for the disciples on the shore, boom. He just appears for 40 days to different groups of people doing what? Proving himself to be alive, He's proving himself. He's giving many proofs, many examples of how he is alive. And this is a huge, huge, essential piece to what we're doing. Because Christianity is a faith that is not rooted in a bunch of rules, a bunch of do good. It's not rooted in philosophy. It's not rooted in a location. It is rooted in an actual historical event that took place in time and space. Some religions are, are based on philosophy. You got Buddhism. It's a bunch of rules. You got Islam. You got to go to a bunch of places. You got all these things. 
Christianity is not rooted in philosophy. It is rooted in a person, the person of Christ, whom we believe to be alive. It's, it's, it's something that's historical. And if the resurrection is not true, if it's not true, if it's a hoax, then you are sitting in a hot sanctuary for no reason. <laughs> so you woke up early on your day off and you were wasting your time. And you are actually the most pitiful people in the world. In fact, Paul would say you are, in his words, losers. That's the NIV. He says pity. But he's saying this. You are singing to a guy who is dead? You are praying to a guy who is dead? You are drinking juice and eating bread, picturing a guy who is dead? You're expecting when you die for him to come and take you to be with him in heaven? If he is not alive, what are we doing? What are we doing? We are most to be pitied, right? Because what the resurrection does, it answers the question, what happens next? What happens after this? And if nothing happens after this, then you better eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if he did raise from the dead, if he is alive, then you better listen to him because he's the only one who ever did it. And he has something to say. He said, well, I don't really believe in the resurrection. I don't, I don't think it's true. Then go investigate it. There's been many people, a lot smarter than me, that have sought out to try to disprove the resurrection over the last 2,000 years. No one's been able to do it. No one's been able to do it. There's been books written about it. In fact, the Apostle Paul, 25 years later, after the resurrection, he writes to the Corinthian church. He says, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. And then he says this. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, if you don't believe me, that's fine. You don't have to. Get on a boat, go down to Jerusalem, knock on a door and say, hey, there was a guy about 25 years ago. They said he raised from the dead. Did you, did you see him? And they're probably going to say, no, I didn't see him, but my uncle did. And you can go down the road. Or he has a barbershop down the road. You go in there and talk to him. And he saw him. He's still alive. See, this is, if you're trying to spread a lie, the last thing you ever do, the last thing you ever do is make yourself falsifiable. You don't want to, if you're going to try to exaggerate or lie about something, don't make it so they can go find it. If there's a Wikipedia page on it, you don't want it. My youngest son keeps telling all his buddies, my dad played for the Phillies. <laughs> now, I don't know how he got that in his head, but I'm not going to bash his dream, okay? But, I mean, that's not a good lie. Because you can go and check the rosters for the last 39 years, and I'm not on them, okay? Now, my eight-year-old baseball team, I was on the Phillies. I don't count. But you never falsify yourself if you're trying to spread a lie. But the point is this, he's alive. And it's essential for what he's going to ask them to do. If they don't believe he's alive, he's about to say, I want you to risk everything for me. I want you to lay it all down. And if he's not alive, they would know, if anyone is going to know it, they're going to know it. Are they going to die for a lie? They all end up dying for this. They all end up going to their graves. Some are crucified, some are stoned, some are beheaded. They're all going to lie down and die swearing that he is alive. If they know it is not true, are they going to die for that lie? I mean, they'll die for something they may think may be true. But they would know if anyone would know. He proved it time and time again that he was alive. He's alive. 
And this is, this is what's key for us. And it's, you may say, well, that's oversimplistic. We're in the church. It's not. The first part of our, of our key is that he is alive. Here's why. If you're coming here and this is a bunch of rules and we go to church and we do this quiet time and blah, blah. If that's all this is to you, then you are missing it. And there is no map. There is no adventure. There is no mission for you because this is just a bunch of rules. If he's alive now, you're going to act like he is alive. You're going to talk to him like he's alive and he's going to talk to you because he is alive. You're going to ask him for strength and you're going to ask him for guidance and you're going to ask him for wisdom and you're going to ask him for help and you're going to cry out to him and you're going to talk to him like he's alive because he is. You're going to sing to him as if he's alive. You're going to understand that he is actively involved in every aspect of your life. He's not some distant God that just says, go play kids, go, I'm, I'm busy. It's a huge, huge understanding of that he is alive, that he cares, and he intimately knows you right now because his spirit is in you. That you have become his hands and his feet. You. This is his story lived out through you. And it's, it's a huge, huge piece of what we we're, we're talk about and what we do. And so the question is, do you live your life as if Jesus is alive? I mean, this week, last week I challenged some of you just to read a psalm every morning and praise him. How many of us really went and did it? How many of us really praised him as if he was alive? How many of us talked to him this week as if he was alive? Because he is. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever who opens the door, I'll come and dine with him and he with me. There's this desire for fellowship. And we keep talking about this because it's, we keep needing to be reminded because it's so easy to check the box, go to church, write in the journal, do these things, and not treat Jesus as if he is alive. And he is alive. He's alive, church. They believed it. They went to their grave. And it is essential. And if, if you don't believe it, you won't live like it. He's alive. And so he proves it to him. Many proofs. Appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And he's talking about the kingdom. And he's hanging out with them. And I'm sure that there's an excitement, right? They're probably saying, all right, we got it, Jesus. What do you want us to do? We're ready. We're ready for the task. You, you tell us what to do and we'll do it. And he says, all right, here's the task. Ready? Don't do anything. So he tells them, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. How many of you like waiting? Right? He says, no, I want you to do nothing. I want you to wait for the promise of the Father, who, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in not many days. So I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. You know, the worst part about waiting is when you don't know how long you have to wait. Now, if you tell me, hey, I'm going to be 15 minutes late, just wait for me, that's fine. I can handle that. He just says, wait, and then he gives them the time frame, not many days from now. You know how many days not many days ends up being? 10. That's a long time. Especially when you don't know. Those of us who are a little older, we remember the days when UPS didn't have a tracking number that you could get online and find out what gas station they're at and what Diet Coke they're drinking. And you're like, oh, they're right up the street. They're at Parker's. I know where they are right now. You just had to wait every day. Wait, wait, wait. And finally they show up. Jesus says, I want you to wait. I want you to do nothing. I want you to stay until the Holy Spirit comes, whom he promised and he kept talking about apparently with them. Now, they are hearing Holy Spirit, they're hearing kingdom, they're hearing all this talk, and they are good Old Testament scholars. They know the book of Ezekiel, they know the book of Isaiah, they know all the promises for David, they know all the promises for Abraham. And so what they're thinking is, kingdom, it's time. 
It's time for Jesus to rule and reign in Israel. And so they ask him. When they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time, Jesus, when you're going to kick Rome out, that you're going to establish the kingdom? You said something about 12 thrones for us. Remember that? The whole throne thing? I want that my throne next to you. Remember that discussion? Is this the time that the kingdom is now Israel and you're going to rule and reign the world? Because there's this Old Testament understanding that God will, will once again establish Israel and the kingdom there and the 12 thrones there. And I am one who personally believes that God has a future for national Israel. Right? And if, they, if not, then how come everyone's fighting over a little piece of land the size of Jersey that has really no national resources? Right? Why is they at the center of the news every day of the nation of Israel? Because God has a future for the nation of Israel. And they will one day look upon whom the one he pierced. But the point Jesus is saying, they're saying they got a political agenda. They, they want the time to be now. They got the charts out. This is time. Jesus says, it, it's not for you to know the when. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He says, you don't need to worry about the when part. Let, that's God's business. Let the Father deal with that. He's fixed that by his authority. I got something else for you to do in the meantime. I have a mission for you. I have an adventure for you. I have a task. And then he gives the most important verse in the book. It is the outline of the book. It is the theme of the book. It is the key of the book. He says this, but you, disciples, plural, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what's the result of the Holy Spirit? Cause-effect relationship. Look at the word order. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then, as a result, you will be my witnesses. Now, this word witnesses, we don't, this is not a great word for us in English. It's the Greek word martyres. We get our English word martyr from it, right? But what is a witness? A witness is just simply someone who testifies about something, who speaks truth, who, who points to something else. He says, you disciples are now going to be my testimony. You are my witnesses. You are going to bear testimony about me. You are going to represent me. Now, from an external perspective, you got to be thinking, Jesus, you came to the right place. If anybody is qualified to be a witness... These guys, I mean, they've been with you for three and a half years. I mean, if you're having the kind of one-up discussion, well, I'm the most qualified to do this. I went to Oxford University, I have my PhD in the New Testament studies. Yeah, that's great. Well, I went to John Piper's church 30 years, and I was a disciple by John. That's great. Yeah, you in the back. I was discipled by Jesus. All right, you win. All right, you're, you're the guy. We pick you, right? That's the guy that you want to be his witness. He's the one that you want to go out, right? But what has Jesus just said? You can't do this. You think you can do this. But Jesus, we've been, you taught us everything you know the last three and a half years. Wait. But Jesus, you, you, we, know, we, know, we know everything you said. I wrote it down. I got it in my journal. I can go tell. I know, I know all about you. I can tell everyone about you. Wait. See, the, the idea here is this. They are, it doesn't matter where they've been and who they've been with. They are not qualified to do anything for God until the Holy Spirit comes. Where does their power come from? The Holy Spirit. Where does the effective witness come from? Holy Spirit. doesn't matter what they did. And this is the, the biggest of all pieces for this entire book. Really, for your Christian life. This is the, other than the salvation, this is the biggest piece of your Christian life is that you, by yourself, have absolutely zero power to do zero anything for God. The only power you have 
to live the Christian life in any way, shape, or form is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Period. Done. End of story. And if you need an example, look at the disciples. Look at Peter 40 days earlier. Peter, you're going to die. I mean, Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be betrayed and I'm going to be uh, wrestled and all these things and, and, and you're going you're gonna to go, no, Jesus, that'll never happen. I'm ready to die for you right now. Three hours later, a little eight-year-old girl, do you know Jesus? Never heard of him? Get away from me, kid. I don't know Jesus. Right? That's, that's you and me apart from the Holy Spirit. And what happens just 10 days later after this? What's the, the difference between a bunch of disciples hiding out in closets? Oh, no, they're going to get us. At the day of Pentecost, we're going to see it in a couple weeks. Peter stands in the middle of the temple. Thousands of people. And he says, you killed Jesus. You need to repent right now. What's the difference between running from an eight-year-old girl and preaching to thousands? Only one thing. The Holy Spirit. Period. End of story. There is no power apart from the Holy Spirit. And if you're here, I've been a Christian for 35 years. I went to you know, Bible college. I did, I did talk Bible study. I memorized the book of Romans, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. You have no power. In, I'm going to convince my kids. I'm going to raise them up to be godly. And I'm going to convince my neighbor. I'm going to invite them to church. I'm going to do all these things. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to have victory over sin. No, you are not. Not apart from the Holy Spirit, you're not. You have no power. No power. No power to be a witness. No power to be a testimony. So well, I'm not really a witness anyway. If you name the name of Christ, you are. Because people will come to a conclusion about who Jesus is, about life, about marriage, about church, from you. Whether it's good or bad, that's up to you. And the sad thing is, many people have a view of Christians that we are crazy, that we are unkind, that we are mean, that we are racist, and the reality is some of us are. That's, that's the reality. And God says, no, you, and and if, you, if you're on your own mission, whose mission is this? You will be my witnesses, not yours. Some of you are on your mission to make your name great, to do your thing. And you think you can go pass a bunch of laws and you think you can go yell at a bunch of people and win a bunch of arguments? And that's going to be, that's real power. I convinced them. I won the debate. That's not power. And we hear the word power sometimes and you hear some of the preachers who, who they know just enough Greek to be dangerous. And they say, the word power is dunamis. And we get our English word dynamite from it. And woo, dynamite, we have dynamite. That's not the idea. The idea behind power is not walking on water and lightning from your hands. Here's power. When you and your spouse are in a fight and someone says something hateful, the other, the other person has the power to be gentle. That's power. Power is when your 17-year-old child runs off and rebels, and when they come home, you embrace them with love. That is power. When your competitor in this town for your business slanders you in the paper and lies about you, which causes you to lose money, and you forgive them, that is power. When Corey Ten Boom is looking at, in the eyes of one of the guards in the prison camps and is able to embrace that man and forgive that man because he's a Christian, that is power. It's power to overcome an eating disorder because you know that you are made in the image of God and God loves you just as you are and you don't have to be thin to be loved. 
It's, that's power. It's power to resist temptation. It's power to resist same-sex attraction or an addiction to pornography or a lying tongue or pride. That is power. It's the power where a family's direction is changed because a dad comes to faith and they're headed down to destruction and chaos. And because the father gets saved, the family is now headed towards, towards a, a better future. And that's the, only, that's the power we're talking about. The power to see people's eyes open. The power to love your enemies, to love ISIS. That's loving your enemies. When Jesus says love your enemies, he's not talking about your neighbor who, who cut your tree down. That's easy. He's talking about those who want to kill you. That's loving your enemy. That's what Jesus did. That, that takes more than it's in y'all. It takes more than just being nice. It takes true power. And that is what the Holy Spirit is. It's power. It's to live the life that Christ lived. Everything Jesus did in his life, he lived in the power of the Spirit. He was conceived in the Spirit. Look, read just through the Gospel of Luke. It talks about how the Holy Spirit came on him at his baptism, that he was filled with the Spirit, that he was led by the Spirit, that he celebrated in the Spirit, that he rejoiced in the Spirit. That he, even in Acts, Acts 1-2, it says that he commanded them through the Spirit. He didn't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite, favorite things that he did is in Luke chapter 4, he walks into the synagogue, and they're, and they're reading the scripture. And they say, would you like to read the, the scroll today, Jesus? And he says, yeah, I, I wrote it. I might as well read it to you all. I mean, all right. So he, un, he unravels the scroll. And, and this is, there's no chapter divisions and verses. Okay, it's just a scroll of Isaiah. And he randomly opens to a chapter. Right? He just opens the scroll. He rolls it. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls it up. He says, that's me. This was fulfilled right now. Have a nice day. He gives the scroll back. That is either the most arrogant statement ever or he is God. And he is God. To randomly open that passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me. And I am here now to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim hope. This is the wave of grace that started in Genesis 3 and it's continuing. I'm setting people free. I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's grace. Here I am. By the power of the spirit. And this is the amazing truth that we have to grasp. That you, CBC, if you are born again, you have God living inside of you. Can you fathom that? That God has has chosen to dwell in you? That Christ is living in us? That he resides with us? How amazing is that truth? And I know some of you, you get a little nervous. We start talking about the Spirit. I know. I mean, you're fine with the the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. But when we talk about the Spirit, I mean... (laughs) Right? And you're worried that we're going to come all, you know, all the ladies are going to come back next week with pink hair and eyeshadow, and we're going to have banners and you know, selling vials of the Jordan River. I promise you, it's not where we're going. But you have the living Christ in you. Peter says that you have been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need to live the life in front of you. Everything you need to be on mission. Everything you need to be on your adventure. Everything. You have power overcome that sin not in yourself but in him and and we just want to be a people that are empowered by the spirit 
Jesus told the disciples, it's better that I leave you because then the helper, the, the one who comes alongside will come. How can it be better for Jesus to leave? Every time Jesus leaves, the waves get big, the disciples freak out, everything bad happens. How can it be good for Jesus to leave? Because he sends the spirit who can be everywhere now with us. Everywhere. And he guides us. And he teaches us. What is, he's going to convict of sin, righteousness, judgment, Jesus says. He's going to lead you in all truth. He's going to teach you. He's going to remind you what I've said. That's what the Spirit does. If you just seek to be led by him. And if you come in here, I'm, I promise you this. If you have ever come to this church and you feel like, wow, I learned that and I was convicted by that. Don't look at me. I promise you, I have nothing. I have no power to do anything. If you feel convicted, if you feel encouraged, if you feel challenged, that was the Holy Spirit using a broken man to speak to your heart through a perfect text. That's all that was. He is alive. He is in us. He uses us. He leads us. He guides us. He convicts us. And maybe you're the one that's trying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to win this person. Christ. I'm going I'm to go out and be a good dad. I'm gonna... Not apart from the Spirit. And maybe the starting place for you is just, I've been trying real hard and I've been failing real big. Lord, why don't you take control? Spirit, why don't you start leading me? Why don't you open doors? I'm not going to open any doors. I've knocked down houses already. I'll let you open the doors. I'll let you bring me to where. I'll let you guide me to the college I want to go to. You want me to go to. I'll let you pick the job. I'll let you do this. And you know what he'll say? Thank you. About time. Right? I was I was just kind of practicing this a little bit this week, just praying, Lord, just lead me, just in little things. And so Friday morning, Friday's my day off, and I wake up at 5 a.m., and I'm wide awake. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to roll back down. But I just felt the Spirit just wanted me to go downstairs and just spend a little bit of time in prayer and just reading and working on the sermon. My first thought was, I don't do church on Friday, guys. Don't you know that? I mean, this is Friday. It's my day off. <laughs> I'm off on Fridays, but I remembered I've been asking God to do this. So I got up, went downstairs, kicked Milton off the couch, got the laptop out and started praying a little bit and just thinking. And some of the most encouraging things from this text came to my mind at 5.30 in the morning. Maybe just for me, but God wanted to speak to me. Right? That, that's power. Um, power is not calling lightning from heaven. Power is just simply being sensitive to the Holy Spirit in you and obeying. That's power. It's just living the life that God has set before you, wherever that is. That's power. He says, you are going to be my witnesses. And it's not about your resources. These guys had no Bibles. They, the first book of the Bible, we just looked at it in James, was written 15 years later. They don't have a New Testament. They don't have church buildings. They don't have great preachers. They don't have all these things. They just have the Spirit, and they change the world. Get what I'm saying here, CBC? We're going here. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God, the Holy Spirit, a living Savior. And he tells them, he says, here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to be my witnesses. All right? Where? In Jerusalem. Where's that? That's where they're at right now. That's not a great place to be. They just killed Jesus there. Anybody that's a follower of Jesus is probably not a popular guy. He says, you're going to be in Jerusalem. You're going to be in Jerusalem. Then you go into Judea. That's the suburbs. That's where they, all the people came from to kill Jesus. So they don't like you there either. But I'm sending you there. And then I'm going to send you to Samaria, where you hate them and they hate you. That's the, yeah, that group. The group that you won't walk in their territory. You'll go 100 miles out of the way. Yeah, I'm going to send you there too. And then I'm going to send you to the Gentiles because you love them so much. Right? You're going to be my witnesses. What's the point? Everywhere. 
But here's the key. Here's what I want us to grasp. Because we always guilt people into trying to get them to Africa. Where do they start? What is the first city he mentions? Jerusalem. Where are they at now? Jerusalem. Where does being a testimony start? It starts where you are. If God's got you in Ardsley Park, he's got you in Ardsley Park. If he's got you in the landings, he's got you in the landings. If he's got you at Fort Stewart, then that's where you're a witness. He's got you on Hunter. He's got you at Gulfstream. He's got you at SCAD. He's got you at Armstrong. He's got you on the island. He's not saying, everyone go to Africa. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you're going to be my witnesses right where you're at. You know how many people go to the nations in the book of Acts? In 30 years, you know how many guys go on missionary trips? Like seven. Paul, Silas, Mark, but he quits halfway through. Barnabas, just a few guys go. Where's everybody else? They're just doing their, they're just living life in Jerusalem. They're living life where they're at. And look, somebody here, God is going to send you. He might send you to China. He might send you that. We got people we've sent. That's awesome. If he sends you, you go. But some of you are looking for significance out there, and God's got you where he's got you, and that's where you're supposed to be a witness. Stop trying to seek some great adventure out there. Your adventure is right in front of you. So don't go seek for it out there. Be where God has you. And then if you walk by the Spirit, he'll take you to Africa if he wants you in Africa. You'll get there. He'll take you to Rome like Paul wanted to get to Rome. Be where you're at. Just be a witness. Get out of your little cubby hole. Stop yelling at your kid's referee. Be nice. Be a light. Be a witness. That's where it starts. People who live as if Christ was alive in the power of the Spirit, right where they're at. That's what we're doing. That's why in our video that Matt and Mallory put together for you, we had pictures of what city? Oh, good. Some of you recognize it. I'm glad you've been out all of that. All right. One picture of the nation's. That was your city. And if you don't know it, you need to get out more. Go down to Forsyth. There's a bazillion people down there. Go to, make, go to Bacon Park. Go to your kids' soccer games. Get out and see your neighbors. Well, they annoy me. Great. That's power to love annoying people. Okay? That's what we're talking about. Right? That's what we are. We're not asking everyone. We're just asking you to love people where you're at. Be a witness in the power of the Spirit. That's it. A living Christ with a powerful spirit. And then there's one more thing here. And this is my favorite part of the, of the narrative. Right? I would love, I'm TiVo in this when we get to heaven, if they have that there. All right, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on. Now, Jesus has just finished telling them this. And as they're looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, picture this. He's speaking. He's preaching. And all of a sudden, he's kind of up in the air a little bit. You got to figure, Peter's like, is he, is he floating right now? And he just starts going up and up. And you ever, you know, if you have kids and you ever gone to like, you know, the Cracker Barrel and they give them a balloon, and as soon as they get outside, what do they do? Boop! And you just watch that thing. Around. And everyone just sits there for five minutes so they can't see it. That was cool. But that's, that's in essence what's going on. So Jesus starts floating up. And they're just watching. And watching him. Can you still see him? And a cloud just. And this, this is the picture. They're just sitting there looking. Is he coming back, Peter? I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And they're just sitting there, and, just, and finally God's got to say, somebody get down there, right? So, someone tell him to stop looking. And so he sends two angels, and they said, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up for you in heaven, he will come in the same way 
Stop looking up. He's, he's going to come back just that way. But now he gave you a job. No, go. First you wait, then your witnesses. Right? And it's this great picture. I think there's a little humor there in Luke. But here's, here's the last truth that we grasp. is this. They, they, just like he promised, he is coming back. And the reason that's important is because you read the New Testament and there's always an expectation. The Apostle Paul thinks he's coming back anytime. The Apostle Peter thinks he's coming back anytime. The Apostle John thinks he's back, coming back anytime. And so he could come back at any time. And the only reason he has not come back, what does Peter say? It's not that he's slow. It's not that he's delayed. He is patient with us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting for the church, the final chapter of that story to end. He's going to close the book, and it will end. And it might end today before third service, and then only have to preach three. Or it may end in a thousand years. You don't know. But the point is this. You should always be ready. Singing like you're ready, loving like you're ready, living like you're ready. Because he's coming back. Look, we can go through the book of Acts in the next 30 weeks, and we can talk all about great things that Paul did and all these guys did. But if you don't understand that you serve a living Christ, and you don't understand that your power is not in the Holy Spirit, and you don't understand that he's coming back, then then don't waste your time. That's the essential part of what we're doing, right? So come back to those three things, and if you get nothing else, get those. Let's worship and let's pray. Let's stand with me. Father, you have sent your spirit, the comforter, the keeper, the helper. I pray that your church would be filled with your spirit, not filled with our wisdom, not filled with our knowledge, not filled with what we think we can do, but that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would open doors for the word that we may walk through them, that you would bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, that you would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that you would intercede for us and pray for us when we don't know how, that you, Holy Spirit, would lead this group of people to just be light in a dark world. We can't do it apart from you. We acknowledge that, so we pray that to you, Jesus, our Savior, send your spirit. May he fall fresh on us this morning and through the week. For your name's sake, I pray.